This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. The most memorable interviews and listener calls from the week that was on Fight Back with Libby Snymer. Welcome to the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Good afternoon and welcome to the Saturday edition of the best of Fight Back from the week that was. Why is that after all the criticisms, talk and promises Ontario's long-term care homes still seem unprepared for the second wave of COVID-19? LTC is still suffering from staffing shortages and thousands of residents are still stuck in rooms with three or four people. Here in Ontario, as of early this past week, the number of long-term care homes with COVID-19 outbreaks had quadrupled to 86 over the course of a month. Is the problem, as the opposition New Democrats contend, the fault of a conservative government trying to cheap out on any fix? The LTC minister says it's complicated. Dr. Marilee Fullerton says you can't just snap your fingers and conjure workers with the right skill sets. Amid all of this, there are new restrictions on residents who are starved for human contact. Our Zoomer squad addressed this unresolved issue on Monday. Libby Snymer was joined by David Kravitz, Vice President here at Zoomer Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP. Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine and Bill Van Gorder, Acting Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. The fact that uh, Minister Fullerton uh walked out of the meeting today shows how frustrated uh, she is by the system. The system is broken. It's not working. And uh, even though uh, many people think they know what the answers uh, are in terms of the immediate uh, solution, the fact of the matter is there have to be substantive changes. These little tweaks that the government is making or the announcements of throwing money at it aren't going to solve the problem. They haven't yet, and they won't in the future unless there's action now. Okay, Peter, what do you think? I think it was about a month ago they, they announced a $50 million um, program to bump up uh, nurses and uh, personal support workers in long-term care homes. Um, that included a $5,000 signing bonus for PSWs. Um, and if they haven't got uptake on that... Um, I'm concerned that people just don't want to work there at all. You know, it doesn't doesn't matter what the pay is. It's just such a, um, you know, such a a difficult place to work and a lot of tension, a lot of, uh, you know, potential to get sick yourself that people are just not wanting to work there. So I'm not sure how they're going to overcome the staff shortage until they, um, you know, until people see it as a better place to work. David, what's your view on this? And it's interesting that as soon as they announced that bonus, and I think it might have been for recent nursing grads, the nurses union stepped in and said, well, uh, it's just causing dissension because one group of people is getting a bonus and another, another's are not. I mean, is this sort of devolving into squabbling among the different pay grades? Well, for sure it is, and I, I echo what Bill said and, to, and Peter, that you've got uh, announcements of sums of money, but 
very, very vague on the details. When when the Minister Fortin announced, for example, at the end of September, four hundred million for recruiting the Ontario Long Term Care Association, which said in its press release after the announcement that they need to recruit, and I'm quoting, an army, and they saw the money as building a solid foundation for our recruiting efforts. That's in quotes again, directly from their uh, uh, press release. Well. That sounds suspiciously vague and very, very off in the future to me, building a foundation. I wish the minister would come out or somebody would come out and say, here is exactly how many positions we are that are short. We're short X thousand bodies. And yes, long-term recruiting and better pay and more money is going to solve part of it, but we have an immediate need. And, you know, I note that the Red Cross is moving in on a number of nursing homes in Ottawa. We need to get specific numbers of what's the shortfall and how are they proposing to fill it in the immediate future when lives are at stake. And so far, there's been no detail about that that I'm aware of. Peter, do you see a problem that it's it's really hard to get past, again, some of the union politics and the squabbling among the different aspects of the profession? Yeah, I mean, that's always going to come up, Libby, and it's... Unfortunately, whenever you, whenever the government does something, as you say, the uh, the unions say no, 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 that's not fair. You know, it has to be done this way. And um, so, I, I guess they're going to have to do what they always promise to do and get all the stakeholders around the table and hammer out uh, an agreement that works in their in their collective bargaining interests as well as as for hiring nurses and personal support workers from from the home's point of view. So. Um, you know, I, I don't think they've sat down. I, I mean, we, we see the uh, union sending off letters and press releases, but I'm not sure they've they've had any face-to-face meetings to solve this, uh, you know, the, the labor shortage. Peter Mugridge, senior editor of Zoomer magazine, David Kravitz, vice president here at Zoomer Media and chief marketing officer at CARP, and Bill Van Gorder, acting chief policy officer also at CARP. Fight Back's Monday Zoomer Squad. You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Still with long-term care and the minister in charge, Marilee Fullerton came under criticism early this past week for refusing to take a reporter's question and abruptly leaving a news conference. The reporter in question had recently challenged Dr. Fullerton on social media for comparing the huge pandemic death toll in Ontario nursing homes to a bad flu season. Some observers have gone so far to say the flu comment could mark the end of Fullerton's tenure as long-term care minister. Our Tuesday strategy panel discussed the issue. Limby Snymer was joined by Karen Stintz, CEO of Variety Village, Charles Bird, managing principal of Earnscliff Strategy Group in Toronto, and John Capobianco, senior vice president and senior partner, Fleischman Hillard High Road. I think in fairness to uh, to the minister, she has been out there and she has been, I think, on, on from a daily perspective out with the uh, with the premier. I know the premier, when he does his daily press conferences, he, he often shakes up his the ministers who are uh, who are with him, obviously, depending on the announcement of the day. If it's education, he'll have the minister uh uh, Lecce with him if it's, uh, you know, Right, financial. but she was on her own this time. I yeah, haven't seen so, that. So, so I do. So I think from that perspective would be, I think that, you know, it's unfortunate that she did that. You know, I can't, you can't defend that. Uh, I think ministers are, 
uh, by virtue of their responsibilities, you know, have to take tough questions and, and are quite frankly prepared and, and in some cases are, are, you know, are taught how to take t- tough questions. So I don't, I don't particularly li- like the fact that she did that. I think that with respect to the, to the reporter, I know there was some history with the two of them that, that uh, the reporter, I think, alleged sort of mis- misquoted her on some, some occasion and hence the Twitter warfare. So I know there was some history and I think that the pressures might have gotten to the minister and she just didn't want to deal with with the fact that this particular reporter had given her some some bad you know some bad press in the past, but nonetheless, saying that, having said that, I don't think that any minister should walk away uh, from tough questions. I think the premier has been doing a great job by taking all the tough questions, and so other ministers. So I I don't I don't particularly like that she did that. I think that you know obviously there's pressures of the moment, uh, and the fact that there's a bit of a history between her and that reporter. To me, I don't know if she can hack it, Charles. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it goes to John's comments that, you know, these folks are under tremendous pressure, especially someone who's responsible for long-term care in Ontario. But, yeah, I mean, it, and the, the, other, the other thing is this complete mess was entirely the making of her office, which is to say that this whole hullabaloo stemmed from an article that appeared in the Toronto Sun a couple of weeks ago by Brian Lilly, where he did the usual right-wing trope of saying, oh, you know, COVID's impact is right, right. really not as bad as the flu. And he, he, the exact quote was that um, not much worse than a bad flu season, you know, when it comes to deaths in long-term care facilities. And this was actually based on a document that Fullerton's office had provided to Lilly and presumably others. And the document in question went as far as to say that in January, February, March, and June, there were fewer deaths in LTCs when compared to 2018, a particularly bad flu year, end quote. And of course, they continually left April and May out of the equation, where there were over 5,000 deaths. And so um, it's, it's really just, just a mess. And, um, you know, you talk about lies, damn lies, and statistics. And here's a good example of uh, the minister's office getting it dead wrong. They have done some things. They have not done a good job of communicating what they have done. And uh, they're still, you know, the the premier keeps saying how he's not going to leave any stone unturned. But, you know, here we are in the second wave. We have uh, the number 80 some odd nursing homes in outbreaks. And there's still a huge staffing shortage. I mean, what more is it going to take uh, you know, for this, how does this minister keep her job, Karen? Well, I, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, like, you know, she could probably be forgiven for, uh, you know, acting in the moment if there was visible work being done to rehaul the long-term care sector, but th- but nobody sees it. And to your point, there's still outbreaks. Uh, families who have loved ones in long-term care can't see them. Um, it's been a horrible experience for families and people in long-term care, whether they contracted COVID or they're living in the fear of contracting COVID. So the entire sector is an absolute mess, candidly. And that's the issue, is that if this minister had been, you know, rolled up sleeves, dealing with the issues, making progress, pointing to success, she could be forgiven for a misstep. But, but the fact that there's so much undone and so much um, worry and vulnerability that still exists in the sector, and so many families are paying such a heavy price, that's where the, the lack of ability to, to pass this one off comes from. Karen Stintz, Charles Bird, and John Capobianco fight back's Tuesday strategy panel.
You're listening to the best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. Coming up after the break, should we take comfort in fewer hospitalizations and deaths during the second wave? Fight Back asks the experts next. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Good isn't good enough. Make way for the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Despite the higher numbers of daily COVID-19 cases, there are fewer related deaths and hospitalizations during the second wave than we saw in the spring. But the experts say there is no reason to take comfort in this change. In many areas of Ontario, it's still taking several days to process COVID-19 tests. In addition, local public health units are cutting back on contact tracing. So without timely test results and robust contact tracing, how are we going to get hold of the virus? As an aside, the governing PCs at Queen's Park are promising to hire 500 more contact tracers by mid-November, what could be a good part-time job for many Zoomers, since it can be done from home and pays $20 an hour. To discuss, Libby was joined by Dr. Ray Dianandin, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa, Dr. Dion Alleman, an industrial engineering professor at the University of Toronto and an expert in contact tracing, and Dr. Susie Hoda, medical director of infection prevention and control at the University Health Network. So relationships have been set up, and I think the idea is to have a relationship with hospitals where, uh, you know, infection prevention and control programs have been in place for quite a long time and learn from those um, models to try and see how we can uh, strengthen overall infection prevention and control in long-term care homes. Right now, we are working very closely with public health on outbreaks that are occurring in long-term care homes um, that we've developed these relationships with. So so many different stages, and I think it will take uh, some time for it to all roll out, but um, but that's, that's what the plan is. Dr. Dion Alman, Contact tracing. So we know that the contact tracing resources that we had were basically overwhelmed and they've pulled back on that. And I'm wondering, well, how do you get control of this? Because on the one hand, I, I, I don't know if the time to process tests has improved much, but it was way too long. It was, uh, in many cases, four and five days. And in the meantime, they're not doing contact tracing except for confirmed cases. So isn't that a recipe for disaster? Yeah, it, it really can be. Um, contact tracing is an incredibly effective and targeted approach to control the spread of disease. Um, sure, you might not catch, even with slow results, you might not catch, you know, people that, that one person has infected, but you can catch that, you know, third and fourth generation of infections that, that would result. And on top of that, you can hopefully figure out where these infections are occurring, and then that can allow more targeted economical interventions about like which types of businesses um, need to be um, closed down or have further restrictions put in place, uh, what is and isn't safe for people to continue doing. But without contact tracing, it's really hard to know exactly what's going on unless there's a major outbreak somewhere, which then means that we're in a position where we have to look at sort of major broad sweeping um, shutdowns of, of how we conduct our, our normal lives in order to get things under control. 
And would you say, are we at that point where the contact tracing isn't doing its job? Well, I think the fact that, um, you know, a lot of the public health units have had to pull back on contact tracing and just focus on uh, certain areas of interest like <clears throat> schools and uh, congregate care centers um, indicates that, yeah, we are really not able to to do the contact tracing that's that's necessary. And, you know, I mean, it's unfortunate. Our public health units are being asked to run a marathon um, while with one hand tied behind their back and essentially their legs in a potato sack. Uh, because of lack of funding stemming back to the year before COVID started, um, there's just not enough time to school up personnel and uh, and expertise um, that that was lost in in the big budget cuts last year, and now we're we're really suffering from it. Uh, let's bring in Dr. Ray Dionandon. He's in Ottawa, which is uh, another place that's not doing so well in the second wave. How uh, is Ottawa doing in, in terms of those two elements, uh, in terms of getting tests processed and contact tracing? We're also not doing that well. In fact, even in Ottawa, there is this shift towards asking the infected to take the, the lead on contact tracing, which is not great. I mean, if you think back to HIV, if you had to ask the HIV patients to do the the follow-up with people they've been intimate with. It's a it's a awkward conversation for people to have, and so many people aren't following up. So the test trace isolate, the TTI regimen, is broken across the province. That's a serious serious thing to consider. I'm I'm fond of of talking about um, Taiwan as a great example of how we can um, use surveillance and, and tracing and testing to get us out of this. And Taiwan has a population of 23 million, 500 total cases only, only seven deaths. And the reason they were able to do that was that they have a very thorough surveillance and tracing system in place. So uh, we can do that, but it takes political will, it takes resources being invested, and it takes the system to work, and also takes citizens to be on board and to actually give their information when contacted by tracers. Dr. Ray Dianandan, epidemiologist and associate professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ottawa. Dr. Dion Alleman, an industrial engineering professor at the University of Toronto and an expert in contact tracing. And Dr. Susie Hoda, medical director of infection prevention and control at the University Health Network. This is the best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. I'm Jane Brown. Premier Doug Ford continues to say he always listens to the experts when making decisions around the pandemic. But his decision to advise against trick-or-treating in COVID-19 hotspots on Halloween has left some experts criticizing his rationale. Libby spoke with two well-respected epidemiologists about this hot-button issue, Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at Ryerson University, and Dr. Alon Vaisman, an infection control physician at the University Health Network in Toronto. I think overall the recommendation uh, wasn't necessary given what we know about the spread of the disease. Uh, I think being in outside locations, wearing masks, it's a very low-risk behavior, all things considered. And also considering the context of the other things that we are allowing at this stage, so I think uh, when you have these recommendations that are generally not agreed upon by most public health experts, most infection control experts, the government does lose a little bit of credibility uh, as well when you, when you do this kind of thing. And, and also, you know, people are looking for things to do, things, uh, sources of happiness, sources of relaxation, and taking away something like this without a good reason is also a, a negative thing to do. Dr. Sly, what's your view? 
Well, I think Dr. Baseman is a uh, uh, very good argument that side, and I think uh, I'd go along with a lot of what he says, but let's just, for the sake of argument, look at the devil's uh, advocacy position here. What they're worried about is, is the situation where you're getting hordes of of uh, uh, young kids uh, that we know are usually asymptomatic uh, appearing at uh, the front door of seniors who are then sort of exposed to all of these uh, collected breasts if they're not all wearing their masks and in the enthusiasm that they may have fallen off or not uh, been, been uh, tracked, uh, handing out candies. I mean, you're getting potential, a potential there. Sure, it's not, it's not the number one issue. It's not the, <clears throat> the, 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 the shouting at the karaoke bar. But it, but it, it is it is there, and I think in an abundance of caution, the uh, uh, the decision has been made to sort of let's try and throw a little cold, a little cold water on that. Dr. Tam, for instance, suggested uh, handing the candy at the end of a hockey stick. You can leave the candy out on your porch if you're nervous about it. Uh, and one of the uh, rationalizations that I heard, they said, well, you know. It's not outside everywhere. A lot of people live in apartment buildings, and it happens inside there. Well, you know, they, they've mandated a lot of other things can only happen outside. So they could say, okay, trick-or-treating, but only outside. Dr. Sly, what do, what do you think of those rationalizations? Yeah, I think there's rationalization validity in all of those statements, uh, Libby, for sure. The, the pro- point is that I can come up with all kinds of arguments to say, well, you know, wouldn't it be just nice to open the border a little bit to let, you know, our, our families through? Or wouldn't it be good just to allow my favorite bar to open? You know, that's not going to cause too much of a problem. But the point is that we are again in an ascendancy of cases. We've got about 5% of the world that may be infected, somewhere the world now, which means that if you look at it uh, in the way that we've looked at previous pandemics, we're really at the beginning. This isn't the end of anything at all. And so if if we're going to be serious about this, we need to start putting the brakes on, even where it's not necessarily a uh, an open and shut case of, uh, of serious uh, infection risk. I think we've got to do something like that. The nighttime is a problem here, too. The, one of the reasons that, that open air is activities are, uh, are safer is because you've got sunlight as well. But here, everything's going on at night, and we don't have that, uh, that helpful uh, intervention. Do either of you know what the average turnaround time for a test is these days? Let's not get started on testing, Libby. We've let that slip enormously <clears throat> and to a very regrettable degree. We're groping around in the dark here with, an, with, a, with a situation where half of the people virtually who have the virus are asymptomatic. And there's been a reluctance from the very beginning to use sufficient and adequate uh, range of testing that gives us some feedback. We've, that's uh, that's a, a sore point. If you combine the backlog in testing, which has improved over the last week or week and a half, with the absence of contact tracing, specifically in Toronto, then you have a situation where, as was mentioned, we're operating in the dark. There's a certain portion of people who we don't even know were contacts of people and have the disease and are transmitting to others. So until those two being the primary issue being uh, get resolved, then we won't be on top of this in the near future.
Dr. Alan Vaisman, an infection control physician at the University Health Network in Toronto, and Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist and professor at Ryerson University. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. Still to come, what you had to say about the week that was and the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Zoomer Radio, pulling no punches with the best of Fight Back with Jane Brown. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. There were a lot of great calls this week, but the winner of the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week comes from Rose in Mississauga, who phoned to say she appreciates how hard the political leaders are working during the COVID-19 crisis. The uh, Ford government and uh, Justin Trudeau, they are doing a magnificent, magnificent job. They are being just totally stressed out. You can imagine yourself working 24 hours a day together with the cabinet ministers. I am, uh, I was a conservative, but now I am leaning more towards the liberals. And why is that? That is because I am, uh, I am a senior. They are trying to do their best job. And how can you, uh, how can the conservatives just go on with the We Charity scandal with, uh, with uh, any other uh, 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 trying to make too much noise in regards to, uh, to uh, all those investigations? I agree that it was not the right thing with a We Charity. But on the other hand, let, let the government do their job that they're doing during a pandemic. This pandemic is, is horrific. Uh, there are no jobs for anybody. They're trying to do their best. That does it for today's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout Call of the Week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at fightbacklibby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail at 416 416- 367-9636-416-367-9636. I'm Jane Brown. Join me again at the same time tomorrow when we'll round up the rest of the best of Fight Back. The best of Fight Back is produced by Jane Brown, Justin Eacock, and Zeev Hadi, with technical production by Kelly Robotham. Executive producer, Moses Nimer. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.